The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around the subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 82 of The Things We All Carry. Tom Mitchell's a hero. I don't throw that title around often or easily, but in this case, it's the truth. Better known as Tattoo Tom, Tom is a self-described and appropriately anointed, aggressive and unapologetic activist for children with cancer and their families. From a personal tragedy was born a dogged determination to do basically anything and everything for these kids and their families. From becoming a boxer at the age of 39 to participating in the Moab 240 to dedicating space on his own skin for the memory of children lost to this disease, Tom has made himself the ultimate advocate. He founded Still Brave to provide non-medical supportive care to children with cancer and their families. The organization does that and so much more. Parents of children with cancer are overwhelmed with the diagnosis. Tom and Still Brave are there to help. That help can be monetary, emotional, guidance with terms and procedures, or simply a chance to smile. This show is a first responder-centered podcast, and it may seem odd to have Tom as a guest. Trust me, the connection is there. Last September, I recorded with Lauren, a firefighter in my area. She's also a childhood cancer survivor and a board member of Still Brave. A few months ago, I found out that a good friend, co-worker, and in all but blood, a brother of mine was embarking on a cancer journey of his own. His infant son had been diagnosed with an aggressive cancer, and the family needed all the help they could get. My first call was to Lauren. That's all it took, one call. Lauren, Tom, and Stillbrave jumped in and offered money, advice, and an ear. I'm indebted to them for their help they gave so easily and generously. Listen to Tom's story, hear the ugly truths about cancer and the treatments, understand how little is spent on research, find a way to do your part in this battle. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder, you know, love or care about y'all enjoy the show. cleaning and grass cutting yard work stuff to do not in a hurry to get to good deal all right so if you're ready if you're comfortable let's uh let's have a conversation okay all right welcome back to the things we all carry today i'm kind of stepping out of the box a little bit um my guest today is tattoo tom mitchell that's what he's known as and you can you can look at him a little bit and you'll figure out why he's called tattoo tom um and he is a self self-described aggressive and unapologetic activist for children with cancer and their families to get that correct tom that's right and that's he's, correct he's also the founder and director of still brave childhood cancer foundation and uh it's an awesome foundation who has touched the lives of a couple of people that i know one that's very close to me and one that was a guest on my show her name was lauren and you can go back in the in the old episodes and find her episode where she talks about her involvement with tom and all that he's done and i just made sense to talk to him and, and kind of get his word out there, get his story out there and just touch base a little bit and, and let people know what's going on behind the scenes in some of these cases. And, and I just, I just felt that it was the right fit. So welcome and good morning, Tom. Well, Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you uh, showing the interest in, in still Braden and what we do. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And, and 
I know that I'm sitting here with one of your shirts on and we'll get to what the meaning behind it is, but it says still brave renegade. And, and, uh, he's going to get into his story about why he calls people that, that kind of help and follow renegades. Cause I think it's, a, it's impactful and you should hear it. Um, first I want to ask him and I know he's going to have a pretty good answer for me because I follow him on social media and I know what his pastimes are a little bit. Um, what's the last song you listened to? <laughs> so the very last song I listened to was, uh, a cover song that uh, that a, a fellow named Billy Strings did. It's called "Picking Up the Pieces." A, fe- and, uh, a fella, I, I, huh? Yeah, <laughs> a fella named Billy Strings. Yeah, I was um, I was heading back from getting my morning coffee, and and it came on my uh, my radio station. It was "Picking Up the Pieces," which is a cover that he does. Uh, but it's just a really good song. In all likelihood, anytime you ask me that question, my answer probably is going to be some. Billy String song. He seems to be that that my where my musical tastes are, are wavering. It's current currently at the moment. Now, was he or or the Jason Isbell concert at, at Wolf Trap? Was he, was that the last show you've been to? Yeah, the last show I went to was Jason Isbell. Okay. Um, prior to that, I had gone to eleven Billy String shows uh, while I was I was up in New England visiting children with cancer and their families and training a little bit for this ultra marathon that I'm I'm running. But also while I was up there, I I saw eleven. Billy Strings concerts as well uh, while I was gallivanting around the ring. Well, you packed your time in there. So that's, that's I fantastic. Did. And if my audience, and I don't know if my audience, much of my audience has been introduced to Billy Strings. If you haven't go check him out, you will be blown away by his, yeah. his guitar work and else. his music. Um, yeah, and, and I think else. the way I was introduced to him and maybe this is appropriate for everyone to get a, get a feel for him is go to YouTube and, and Google, um, or search out, excuse me. Uh, dust in a baggie and, and see him as a young kid sitting in an old ratty living room playing for his friends and, and you'll be blown away by the the by the f- the speed and finesse of his fingers as he plays the guitar yeah i think a lot of people came to to billy strings by way of that video during covid that video was being posted a lot we were all you know in our houses trying to find something to do to keep ourselves occupied i was making beef jerky i was you know doing all kinds of stuff trying to stay busy and i stumbled upon that video and one other video and that was my introduction uh, to him, and uh, it, it, he's pretty talented. He's one of those uh, guitar players that's, uh, you know, a, a once-in-a-generation type player. He's so talented and such a kind, humble, like, genuine person as well. I mean, he's a real attractive person in his demeanor, aside from his musical, you know, magnitude. He's just a really good dude. I've met him personally, and um, he helped me out with this little club thing. We've talked about that a little, a little bit later. This little club thing that I run, who is so brave, he's now a member of that club. Which uh, which we use to help you know children with cancer by saying, look, we've got Billy Strings in the club, we've got Skip Wild in the club, and uh, so it makes the kids feel like they're really part of something. And Billy was more than uh, willing to join my club when I told him what it was and, and what we were doing. He's a good dude. That's all I can say. Plus, his music is is so good. it's it's phenomenal. It, it'll leave you speechless watching him play. That being said, though, I I definitely enjoyed the Jason Isbell show too. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good performer as well. Oh, he's an awesome performer. It's a different it's a different uh, vein of music, but he's, oh, he's sure. definitely he he holds his own. That's for damn sure. Yeah, my musical tastes run the gambit. From I mean, if you saw my playlist, it would look like somebody threw up all over the Spotify. My musical uh, tastes are pretty eclectic, but. I think it's the nature. I think my Spotify algorithm has schizophrenia, so it's okay. I I understand completely. Yeah, for sure. So where'd you grow up, Tom? So I was born in uh, in Maryland and spent um, probably about first 10, 11 years of my life up and around in in Maryland. My parents got divorced when I was very, very young. 
And so my mom moved around a bunch. I had spent most of my life in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, which not at the time, not the best, um, you know, parts of town, but, you know, I learned a lot about living and a lot about life. But then my parents, uh, my mom and my stepfather got married and we moved to Virginia when I was about 11 or 12. So I spent most of the rest of my life in Virginia, um, growing up in the Tyson's, Vienna, Dunboring area in Virginia. So that's about, that's about as uh, native as you can get in that area. Oh, I'm definitely, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely, na- I'm a DMV native for right. sure, you know, but, but to, to Northern Virginia particularly, yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, maybe growing up or where you went after high school and all that. I, I'm not, you and I haven't really spoke, well, we've never spoken before. I've just kind of followed your, your story a little bit and I don't know any, any depth to your story. So what was, what was childhood, teenage, college? What, what was all that like? Did you go to, what did you do? <laughs> That's the whole, whole can of worms there. Um, so grew up in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties. Um, interesting time to be alive. You know, it was, um, uh, a, gosh, um, a, a fast, aggressive, um, growing up period. You know, we, we call ourselves a people might sort of call ourselves the Gen X or Generation X. And it was a lot of us that were forced to grow up really soon. We were latchkey kids. You know, we were letting ourselves in and out of the house at six, seven years old after school, cooking our own dinner. And things were a lot different back then than, the, than it is today with helicopter parents and stuff like that. So I think, you know, I grew up really fast. My parents divorced when I was pretty young. My dad was, you know, pretty absent from my life. And uh, so, you know, taught myself how to grow old. And uh, my stepdad came into my life. He's a great guy. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, he taught me a lot, taught me about living, he taught me a lot about life, taught me a lot about what was important. Uh, one of the things that, that I like to always mention when I, when I tell about my stepdad, when I was a kid and I was in school, he used to make me read one hour every day. Didn't matter what it was. I could read a comic book. I could read a newspaper. I could read the TV guide. He didn't care, provided I read something at least one hour every day. And I'd have to sit up in the reading room we didn't have cell phones and stuff back then, but I just sit up in the reading room quiet for one hour. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to my stepfather for that. Because not only did he, you know, impress upon me um, the importance of having a solid vocabulary, the importance of learning, you know, a lot about a lot. Well, then again, this was before the internet. This was before you could Google stuff, you know. So I would read, you know, it's comic books, but I'd also read the encyclopedia and dictionaries and books of fiction and nonfiction books and all these things. And then I'd find myself being in this room, instead of reading for an hour, I'd be reading for five, six, seven, eight hours. You know, you get sucked into some of this, these books and their adventures and their, their journeys that you go on with these characters. And, and today, you know, a lot of what I do is, uh, is public speaking. And, um, and I, you know, I'm grateful to my stepfather because I think, again, like I said, I think my vocabulary is better. I think my, my, um, my, my intellect even is better for just having delved into this thing. So, one of the things that I always am grateful to my stepfather for having, I, I want to say forced me to do, but you know, it wasn't long after I wasn't feeling forced. You know, it was something I enjoyed doing. And today, prior to uh, starting this recording, you know, you asked me about a book recommendation. I was like, oh man, I got a book because you know, I love reading. And what's really great today is, you know, you can get access to all the information at your fingertips. You know, the, the, the internet is like a, a gazillion encyclopedias in one. Unfortunately, most people spend their time looking at pictures of cats. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love my cats. I got four cats. Um, but I love, you know, I'll sit in front of my computer and just learn stuff and absorb stuff. 
And I think, like I said, I think that came uh, from my stepfather. And so I'm forever grateful to him for that. It was um, funny. Anyways. Not to interrupt. Well, actually, yes, to interrupt. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was funny. I was talking about this the other day. I was talking about the fact that it's so easy to get, this is a very basic idea, but it's so easy to get updates and highlights of sports games. I'm a, I'm a, everyone knows, as you can tell by the hats, I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. But I was a Red Sox fan growing up in Florida. And he, he, at that time, because we're of the same same era, at that time you didn't you didn't have these highlights, and so you ha- all you had was a newspaper. But that newspaper didn't show up until after you got home from school, and so I would rush home from school, grab the newspaper, and and scour the box scores and scour the articles and and read whatever I could read about. Uh, and then even then, it was if they had a West Coast trip, you didn't have the scores in the morning paper because right. it, it didn't end soon enough to make make the deadline. Right. So yeah, I was. Uh, I- I grew up a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and uh, and back then I used to sit with my old spinster. He had this great heat, and we would sit and listen to the games at the radio. And she would have her notebook, and she would keep all the stats, and she'd pass them around to the neighbor. Like here's the coolest thing, you know. And now, like she probably turned over in the grave if she knew how easy it was to access, you know, the live updates and the live stats. I mean, you could get, you know, stuff. Everything is at your fingertips, and. I think today's generation takes that for granted a little bit, but I don't, man. I absorb that. So I love that. I love anything. It's funny you say that because I have this every season. The one sports package I buy is the MLB package. And quite often I I listen to the radio broadcast instead of watch the TV broadcast just because I can have it on wherever I go. Right. So it's funny you mentioned the radio. Yeah, my aunt loved it. I mean, every time ball game was on, she would sit at the kitchen table and, and, you know, she'd keep her own stats and she'd write down every hit, every RBI. She'd pass that information around to the neighbors who couldn't listen to the game. She was like the the local internet, you know, that was funny. Yes. If I miss her. She was a cool, cool old lady. She was ahead of her time. For sure, for sure. And, uh, but anyway, so yeah, so grew up, you know, hard and fast and it was the 80s. So, uh, you know, I saw my fair share of trouble and, uh, you know, like a lot of kids uh, during that time, I got into some things where I shouldn't have and, and, and traveled and, and did stuff at way too young an age and, and grew up really fast. But, you know, looking back on it, I don't regret any of it. I think that it helped to mold and shape me into the person that I am today. I mean, there's certainly like anybody's life, you know, things you wish you could go back and, and do differently or whenever. But um, I've, I've got to the point in my life where I'm so happy with, with who and what I am today that I realized had any one thing been different than then then I might not be who and what I am today. So I, I try to make friends with all those ghosts and and skeletons from the past because they again they helped mold and shape me into who I am today. Um, went to high school and um, and at Marshall High School and in I guess Tyson's Falls Church area is what they call it. Um, and I was um, not the best student in the world, and, you know. <laughs> unfortunately, I'm really smart and I love to learn. But I don't much like to go to school, and I, mo- I most, mostly definitely did not like being told what to do. Um, so in the tenth grade, I was asked uh, to leave, and uh, and I did. But I went on and, and got my GED like the next day. I didn't even study for it. I just went took the test and crushed the test and started taking classes at Nova at like seventeen years old. And I took a bunch of classes and and then just started working. I'm a real um, I'm a real worker bee, like I always have been. I, you know, I've always had jobs since I was 14 years old. I lied about my age, got a job at a seafood restaurant, um, went on to own a gazillion little companies of my own, starting with a landscaping business. And I was a t-shirt screen printer. I mean, I could spend the rest of the podcast telling you all the <laughs> weird jobs I've had over the years, um, but just started working, started 
working and uh, and trying new things. And I would get a job and I would go as far as I could in that job. And then I'd get bored and then I'd try something else, you know? And and uh, it, it really, I became really, I don't know, um, you know, well-rounded in, in, in the things that I learned and the people that I met. And I was really fortunate to grow up in the, in the area that I did because it was very culturally mixed, very ethnic and culturally mixed, uh, diverse area with all of the diplomats and all of the people that come into Washington, D.C. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I got to meet some amazing people and get exposed to some amazing cultures and lifestyles and, and uh, ethnicities and stuff like that, man. And man, it really helped to, to mold and shape me again into the person that I am today. And I'm super, super grateful um, you know, for having been, have been afforded that opportunity in, in the area that I grew up in. For sure. So you, you, you have numerous jobs, numerous endeavors as, as a young man. Right. What would you say was your thing then? It, can you encapsulate it? What, was it? Was that the thing? Was bouncing around a little bit? I think for sure. Bouncing around was definitely the thing. Like, you know, wearing a lot of masks and wearing a lot of uniforms and, and doing and trying new things. Like I said, I would take a job um, as a dishwasher. And next thing you know, I'd be a sous chef at that restaurant. Then I'd be bored and I'd go on to something else, you know, and I'd start out, you know, sweeping floors. And next thing you know, I'd be at this other high position in the, in the company. And, um, and I just, I just was a real student of, of learning and a real student of absorbing and stuff like that. And I, I studied a lot of, um, obviously music is a, a theme that ran, runs through my life. I saw a gazillion Grateful Dead songs in the 80s, a Grateful Dead shows in the 80s, followed them around much the same way I do Billy Strings. I read, I'm a real student of religion and culture, and I've read books and studied all of the, you know, profound uh, doctrines and dogmas and canons of, you know, all the religions of the world. I've studied them as ad nauseum. You know, just trying to learn as much as I can about what makes humans tick and why I'm here and what makes me tick and things like that. So part of that was, you know, you had to support yourself and you had to make a living. So I would take jobs that I thought were exciting and new, and, and then I'd get bored or or I'd get fired or something, yeah. you know, and I'd move on, move on to something else. Uh, but that was definitely my jam was was moving around and trying new things. I I wasn't very stable. I wasn't very stationary at any one place. I got I get bored very easily. I need a lot, a lot, a lot of sensory input to keep me stimulated and keep me going, which is, you know, can be a, can, can be a hindrance sometimes, but, uh, but if you can satiate that and satisfy that, I mean, it's, it's really not that bad because you absorb it and you learn so much. And so that's what I did, you know, and, um, I met, um, this will probably segue directly into still brave and, okay. and, and what I do. Perfect. I met my daughter, I met my daughter, Shayla's mother. Um, when I was 19, I was working at a place called American Medical Laboratories. And this was one of the weirdest jobs I ever had. I worked in the histology department. And my job was when a hospital or a clinic or a doctor's office would do a procedure and remove a piece of tissue from somebody's body, they would send it to the medical lab, to the histology department, which is a study of, of tissue, to be analyzed, made into slides, and read by the pathologist to see if there was, you know, some, some things were cancerous or, or whatever the, the, the case may be. And so my job, weird as it sounds, was to log in these specimens as they came into the, to the medical lab every night. So I would log them in, label them, pass them on to the pathologist. The pathologist would then go on to embed them in wax, make slides out of them and, and determine if they were cancerous and things like that. But what was really funny is that, you know, these, these things would come in buckets, like, 
Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets, and you never knew what was going to be in there when you opened it up. You know, it could be a Colwyn, it could be, I mean, you just never knew. It was the weirdest stuff in the world. And then my job, once um, once the pathologists had done their job, my job was then to dispose of the tissues. So I would have to separate them from the formaldehyde and have these big, like, like carts of human tissue that I'd have to take down to the incinerator. Anyways, long story short, um, there was this woman and uh, her name was Kim and she worked the night shift and she was a medical transcriptionist. And uh, anyway, one thing led to another and we started talking, we fell in love and um, she wound up being the uh, mother of my oldest daughter, Shayla. And Shayla's my daughter who um, who passed away from from cancer that led to me starting Still Brave and and, and led to um, the pathway that, that I'm traveling down today. So that all happened. At this really weird job I had when I was 19 years old. So you meet you meet her mom at 19, and do you right. guys? Do you, how long? You're, how long? How long before you meet? How long after you meet her? Do you have Shayla? So it probably was um, about three years after after I met Kim that, that Shayla was born. Okay, I was so, like 22. So you, I was, I was pretty say, young. You're a young parent. Yeah, she, uh, Kim Kim was older. It was kind of funny. Kim was a little bit older than me. And uh, she had a daughter from a from a previous marriage who was like, I love her today. I still speak to her. Her name is Darla. I still still speak to her every Father's Day. She messages me on birthdays. I mean, still, she's she's a great kid. But so I became a stepdad really kind of early before Shayla was born. And then Shayla and Darla actually share the same birthday, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it was probably about three years after we met that that Shayla was born. And, uh, and then I was all of a sudden I was a dad and, uh, and still like, you know, still living a rough and, and ruckus life to a lot of degrees. So maybe not best dad in the world at that time, but you know, I was a dad and I was trying my best. I was a young kid and I was trying my best. Later on in life, um, after Sheila was diagnosed, she came to live with me full time. Um, her mom was also really sick. And, uh, so, so Sheila came to live with me one time. We had a lot of very candid conversations about, um, you know, my being a, my father, my being a father to her, and what kind of father I was. And and suffice it to say, at the, um, um, you know, a couple of days. I mean, this may be jumping ahead, but a couple of days before my daughter passed away, you know, she sent me a text and she said, you know, you've turned out to be the best dad in the world. Mm. And uh, so I, I was given an opportunity later in life to sort of. Um, amend that relationship that was a little strained at the beginning, largely due to just my ignorance. You know, I didn't know back then what was important the way that I do today. Um, but I was, again, afforded an opportunity um, to to amend that relationship. And, you know, when you amend a relationship, it's not like, oh, I'm, you know, saying you're sorry. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Saying I'm sorry is kind of a, kind of a weak uh, comment in a lot of regards. But when you make amends, you know, when they amend the constitution, they, they change it to make it better. Right. Right. To make it more just. And when they amend a business deal or whatever, they change it to make it better. And so I was afforded an opportunity to change my relationship with my daughter and, and make it better. And, uh, and I'm very, very grateful you know, for that opportunity. And like I say, uh, she and I had a, a lot of very candid conversations because she was 16 when she um, was diagnosed. So she was old enough to have those kind of conversations. And uh, so we had some very, very candid gut level conversations about life. And, and, uh, when she passed away, uh, there was nothing left to be said, you know, and, and I, I can move on 
with the rest of my life feeling confident that that she approved of of me and and what happened. And so that's that's a great big deal. I'm really lucky that way. You try to pull as a as a father, I guess that any parent who, who lost a, a child, you try to pull as much good from those scenarios as possible because it's hard to find it sometimes, right? right. Like it's hard to accept the unacceptable and find something good and something so shitty. But you'd be surprised how how you can find beauty in things that aren't pretty if you look hard enough. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna I wanted to piggyback on that the young father thing. I was a young dad, you know, I, I my daughter was born when I was twenty. Um and yeah, you're right. You don't you don't know what you don't know when you're 20 years old trying to be a parent, especially nice. especially if you as as you and I have share in common. You know, my dad was out of the house at an early age, and it was a it was a very rough and tumble relationship to the day he died. And and I didn't learn how to be a parent from him, but I did learn how not to be a parent from him. And and For I sure. tried to do all the things he. I tried not to do all the things he did, but that doesn't mean I was a good parent. And and sometimes you don't find that out till later. You go, oh wait, I did fuck up. Wait a second. And then right. you tell, you're right. You have to start making those amends. And, and and I mean, I still do it to the day, and and I still have to make amends. You know, so it's it's not an easy road to be a parent at all. But it's an even harder road to be that young parent not knowing how to do it. Oh, for sure. I mean, that very similar situation. You know, I grew up with with a, a stepfather who was in my life and, and impressed for me some stuff, but he was always my stepfather. So there was always that, you know, fuck you, you're not my dad. You know, yeah. like there's always that tension, right? So, but my real father, he's a deadbeat and he did, he never modeled for me, you know, what it is to be a father. So I, like you just said, I had to learn a lot about what, what not to do, right? And so today looking back, like I'm really grateful for that guy because I became a good father by virtue of him being a shitty one. Right. You know, and it, although it was a long road, yeah. just like we talked about, uh, you know, I might not be as good a father if I, if I, if I had not had, because growing up, I was, and, and when I became a father, I was so determined to be so different than him that while I was still screwing up and still not getting it completely dialed in, I was doing a pretty damn good job. I was showing up. And that's the important part. You know, I tell everybody 99% of what, Tattoo Tom does is he shows up. I just wing the rest. I have no idea what I'm doing, man. I don't know idea. It's all about the showing up, right? Because yeah. I mean, how many people don't show up? Right. And that's the key, man. Because I, I've got my dad never showed up for me, you know, ever. And and that was the one thing I was determined to do. And you know, I have other children today, and they yell and bitch at me about different things. You know, I'm, kids always look at their parents through funny lenses. Uh, but at the end of the day, I know that I show up for my kids, and my kids know then I show up to them. And if something's going on or, or whatever, you know, they know they can call me. It's not, I think that's all this cheesy meme on, on Facebook one time that said, I don't want my kids to get in trouble and be like, oh my God, my dad's going to be so mad. And I want my kids to get in trouble and be like, oh my God, I got to call my dad. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Either to so brag about it or to ask for help. Yeah. And that's, that's the key to be being a good parent. I think, man, it's just, is navigating that you know, that sort of uh, safety, you know, giving your kids an opportunity to feel safe and to feel loved and to feel seen and to feel heard. And if you screw everything else up, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, right. it doesn't matter. Those are the important things. Well, let's talk about Shayla a little bit. You said you found out okay. she was sick at, at age 16, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, kind of a kind of a tough story to tell, but I've told it a lot, so I'll, I'll get through it. Um, I got a phone call from her. And she said, dad, I'm not feeling so good. 
I think I might have a sinus infection or something. Is there any way you could take me to the doctors? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll pick you up. You know, um, we'll go to the doctors. We'll go to the like urgent care clinic. I'm sure it's no big deal. Get you some antibiotics. And then we can grab some dinner afterwards if you feel up to it. Well, it turns out though that her sinus infection was was not a sinus infection. Uh, we got to the urgent care clinic and they took a chest x-ray and there was a tumor in her chest that was so big it was taking up two thirds of her chest and it mm. had caused one of her lungs to collapse. So her trouble breathing and her trouble, um, it w- everything was was directly related to this huge tumor. And, you know, with a 16 year old kid, you know, her mom of course was taking her for her annual checkups, but they don't, they don't do scans or check for cancer in a 16 year old kid, you know? So this thing was just left uh, to get really big. And, um, and unfortunately, when that when that day came and that diagnosis came down, um, it was stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is it's pretty serious. You know, it's a pretty advanced stage for any cancer, stage four. Um, and while Hodgkin's lymphoma is a treat, I have to be really careful how I say this, is a treatable cancer, and a lot of children do recover and and go into remission from it. There's no rhyme or reason to any cancer treatment. Two children. Um, with the same cancer, the same stage, receiving the same treatment protocol, the same medicine, one will live and one will die. And nobody can explain why. And that's a, a rabbit hole that if we went down, you'd see my face get really red and, and I'd start warming up behind my collar because you get very frustrated about that. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we, we got the diagnosis and the, and the doctors, um, you know, asked me, they said, do you want to tell her? Or do you want us to tell her? And so I knew that that was my job. Intuitively, I knew that that was my job. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult conversation to have. So I, I went to the mall um, down from the hospital. There's a, a, a shopping mall. And I was just walking around thinking about everything and nothing and how I was going to have this conversation. And I stumbled into this Native American Indian store where they sold jewelry and moccasins and, and artwork. It's, you know, really beautiful pottery and stuff like that from uh, American, Native American tribes from around the country. And I, I came upon these two bracelets and I'm wearing mine today. It's a speak thick silver feather bracelet. And also next to it was a small feminine version. So I started thinking the wheels started churning and I got this idea. So I bought both the bracelets and I went back to the hospital and I sat down next to her and she, you know, she was scared. She knew something was wrong yeah. and she's, what's going on, dad, what's going on? And so I started talking to her and I talked to her about feathers and how sometimes birds lose feathers and feathers gets blown around in the wind and, and stuff like that. I talked to her about the importance of being brave. And then that conversation eventually segued into cancer. And I told her about her diagnosis. And I also at that time told her that just like these feather bracelets, we had blown together and that her and I were going to get through this together. And the only thing we had to do was stay brave. And so I said, no matter what, I'm going to make you three promises. And the first promise was that um, no matter how many nights she had to stay in the hospital, I would stay with her. And the second promise was that um, as long as she stayed brave, so would I. And the third promise was that I would continue to wear this bracelet every day until she got better. Mm. So I'm here to tell you, I kept all three of those promises. Um, you know, she stayed in the hospital hundreds of nights, probably, you know, through the course of her year and a half treatment, maybe 250 nights we were in the hospital. It was always something. 
Um, and I stayed with her every night. There were exception of a couple of nights where we had a family friend that would stay with her. But so there was always somebody there with, and I stayed 99.99% of the nights with her. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I stayed brave. And although my daughter never recovered from that cancer, I still continued to wear this bracelet every day because I promised her I would until she got better and she didn't get better. So I'm not going to break that promise, you know, to me. So in my mind, I've kept all three of those promises. Um, it was a long tumultuous, uh, treatment. Um, you know, she had every complication you can imagine. And this is where I learned a lot about cancer and mm -hmm. treatment in the United States of America, because I was under the misconception that, that perhaps you are, and many of your listeners are, is that we live in the greatest country in the world, right? So surely we have the most state-of-the-art, up-to-date cancer treatments that the world has to offer, but nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. We're still treating our children with you know, cancer medicine, medicines. They euphemistically call them medicines, but they're really, they're fucking poison. Mm -hmm. You know, they were derived from mustard gas. You know, in the, in, 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 you know, a, a chemical agent deemed so inhumane, we don't even use it on our enemies of war, but this is our go-to medicines. But anyways, I digress. But um, I learned a lot about, about, um, about how shitty it is. You know, we're still using medicines from the 1970s. Nothing is changing. Uh, Americans spend 20 times more money annually on potato chips than we do on childhood cancer research funding. Um, we spend about the same amount of money every year on Halloween costumes for our pets than we do on childhood cancer research. It's about the same amount of money. Hmm. If, that, if you could wrap your head around that. One or two pitchers in Major League Baseball sign contracts bigger than the entire budget yeah. for childhood cancer research. One or two pitchers, that's right. it. And I know you like baseball. I'm not bashing baseball. There's something very disproportionate about that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, between again, sports, I, between sports stars and 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 actors and musicians, there's a very there's this weird there's a love hate relationship because I love the product that they put up, but then I, I I hate this this pedestal and this and this and this in I don't go with inequality. It's it's what the market demands. Sure. But but there's yeah. a, there's a there's a disconnect for between what what the country is going through and what what people are making in some cases. Right. And ultimately, I have no problem with somebody who can make $100 million a year. You're more than welcome. I don't fault them. Yeah. But, yeah, where my problem comes in is that our children aren't worth shit yeah. in that comparison. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where my mind, uh, but anyways, I, again, I digress. And you'll have to stop because I will go down a lot of, a lot of rabbit holes. But anyway, when, um, when she was going through a treatment, something really, really shitty happened. And... Um, they were administering this drug that is very common um, chemotherapy uh, that they uh, uh, put into a cocktail for many different types of cancers. That's called doxorubicin. Mm -hmm. And doxorubicin has been nicknamed the red devil yeah. or the red death yeah. because it's red in color. It looks like Kool-Aid. So when they put it in the IV, it looks like they're putting Kool-Aid into your, your child's body. But the truth is that it's a very toxic chemical that has been proven to cause uh, and have a toxic effect on the heart muscle. And that's what happened when they gave it to my daughter. Her heart stopped working. Um, so they had to put a pacemaker defibrillator into her heart in the event that the treatment that they were using to save her life would try to kill her. Kill her. Which ultimately it kind of does. It's this archaic balance of 
of trying to kill the cancer without killing the patient. It's very insane. It's like treating our children with leeches uh, in the scheme of things, you know, especially when the Tesla drives itself. That's another conversation. <laughs> but anyways, um, one day we were, we were, we were coming back from the, uh, we actually we were leaving the apartment on the way to the chemotherapy clinic and something happened that definitely will haunt me for the rest of my days is that pacemaker defibrillator that they installed into my daughter's chest started malfunctioning Oof. and it was shocking her inappropriately. So, you know, when you see on TV, like somebody code blues and they hit them with those paddles. Well, my daughter's heart was getting hit with these paddles that had been internally implanted into her chest because they thought that she was having a heart attack, which she was not. She was wide awake. So this thing is shocking her. Bam, bam. And she's screaming, help me, dad, it's shocking me, it's shocking me. And, you know, there's nothing I could do. I just wrapped her around my arms around and I held her as tight as I could. And shocking her, help me, dad, it's shocking me, it's shocking me. And finally, it just stopped just as quickly as it had started to stop. Mm. And we rushed to the hospital and um, it turns out, and I, I've mentioned this in one of my TEDx talks, it turns out, they had to recall it like brakes on a fucking Chevy. You know what I mean? And, and, and that was the, the, the course of, 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 of our treatment. It was one shit show after another. And it's not unique. Like I'm not unique. My daughter's case isn't um, a particularly aggressive or particularly ugly. This is the, this is the, the norm for most children. They get mouth sores so bad they can't eat. Their, their genitals get, uh, sores and, and herpes from, from excreting the, the chemotherapies. Like some parents have to wear protective clothing when changing their baby's diapers. And I'm sorry if I'm getting a little aggressive, but you invited me on your show. So. No, get, a, get <laughs> aggressive get a- I, I, because I know I, I, I talked to my, my friend who's, whose nine-month-old child is, 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 just came out of surgery for removing the tumor. And he, t- he, he and I spoke about that, the fact that he had to glove, glove up and gown up just to change Cal's diaper and it affected him yeah. in such a way that he he's like I'm I'm not going to do it and we had to have that conversation where where he's like no, you kind of need to do it bud I mean it's you 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 got to be ready to take care of him and if you're not ready who is going to take care of him so it's it's yeah. a necessity yeah I I tell people all the time it's a really horrific place for parents because we're not qualified for that shit no you know what I mean we're not qualified for it and not only do we have to do things like that but we have to make these really harsh decisions. Um, you know, for our children, all in the name of making them better. We have to agree to allow these doctors to pump this poison into their bodies, knowing the side effects, knowing that right. the odds and the likelihood. It's almost like torturing our own children in the name of making them better. And that causes some shit great. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've seen a lot of parents, whether their child survives or not, you know, be plagued with PTSD and, and all kinds of things for years. I've seen gazillion marriages fall apart. I've seen everything you can imagine since I've been doing this. Uh, but anyway, suffice to say, uh, she had a, a tough battle, like any kid with cancer will have. Um, but it just, it just never got better. Like the cancer just, you know, it looked like at one time it was shrinking and then we went back for the next scan and it was back and, and, um, you know, and then we got to the point where, um, there's nothing more they could do, you know? And so they asked me again, do you want to have this conversation mm-hmm with your daughter or do you want us to have it? And so I had to have it, right? That's not, that's not a, con- a conversation you get to pass off on anybody, unfortunately. No. So, um, and I don't know that I would have, would have passed it off. But anyway, so I sat her down and, um, and I want to tell you, and I'll be really careful how I say this, but it was not 
the conversation that I thought it was going to be. It wound up being a very sacred, beautiful, loving, wonderful conversation that I hope you never fucking have to have. You know what I mean? Um, but we had that conversation and, you know, I had to tell my daughter that she was going to die. And that was a tough conversation. Um, but I did it and we had that conversation. Um, and then I'll skip ahead a little bit. So as a single dad, you know, I couldn't work because I was taking care of her all the time. Uh, her mom had MS at, at that point. So her mom was really struggling with her own medical stuff. Right. And so yeah. I, I was trying to take care of Shayla, was trying to work. I was trying to, you know, pay, put groceries on the table. And sometimes I was, I was forced to get food from a food bank. Um, back in 2009, when my daughter was sick, there weren't nearly as many foundations and social media wasn't nearly as big as it is today. So there wasn't a lot of, of resources available to me. So there was, however, one foundation that helped us out and they, they gave us uh, some money to help us with rent. But I'm such a proud father and a proud man that I insisted on paying it back, right? So they gave us like $1,600. And so when I was a kid, PG County, I used to box because you had to fight in PG County when you're <laughs> a white kid. That's you. Uh, but I used to box at the gym, so I could tell a pretty good punch. I mean, I'm not my Tyson, but I could throw a straight punch. So anyway, I became a professional boxer at uh, like 39 years old, and I fought uh, two professional fights at Patriot Center in front of 10,000 people. Um, it's a long story. It's not a long story. I got knocked out second round, <laughs> but. I raised twenty thousand dollars for that cancer foundation, and I gave them. They gave me sixteen hundred, and I gave them twenty grand to pay them back. Nice. Um, and that sort of that was sort of the beginning of Still Brave. That was the foundation and skeleton that would eventually become Still Brave. My daughter was alive for the first fight, so she walked me to the ring. She passed out, or she passed away shortly after that fight. And so the second fight, um, I had a, a bunch of kids from, from cancer from the hospital walk me to the ring in her absence. Uh, but between that first and second fight, um, because I was a single dad, I had to run to the pharmacy one day to get a prescription for her. And so she was at home, she was in bed, she was on oxygen, you know, I made sure she had water, something to drink and everything. You know, she could text me if something went wrong. And I went to the pharmacy. Well, she got up to use the bathroom while I was gone and I was only gone 10, 15 minutes. I called ahead, told him I was coming, uh, but she fell when she was trying to, to get onto the toilet and she got tangled up in her oxygen lines and she couldn't get up. And so when I came home, that's how I found her. And she was crying you know, she was embarrassed. You know, she had soiled herself. I mean, it was just, it's, it's tough to be a teenage girl, period. It's really hard to be a teenage girl going through some shit like that, you know, to have your father I have to find you that way. But anyway, I picked her up and I cleaned her up and, and I washed her and I, and I laid her back in the bed. And she looked at me and she, you know, she, she had tears in her eyes. She said, I'm still brave, dad, right? Mm. I'm still brave. And, and then it dawned on me, man, this whole, this whole time, this whole fucking time, she hadn't been being brave for herself. She'd been being brave for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's when I coined the phrase still brave. And it's one word, not two words. It's one word, right. word. And still brave means to be brave for somebody else, not for yourself. It means you stay brave so somebody else can stay brave. You model for somebody else what it means to be brave, what it means to, to be empathetic, compassionate, and a human being. 
to be still brave is a great big deal. Um, and a couple of days later, you know, my daughter lost her battle with cancer, but she fought bravely and, um, and, and, and she, she, she took pre goddamn good care of me, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? In spite of it all. So that's sort of the, the, the nutshell, in a nutshell of how still brave got started during those candid conversations. Um, before she died, she made me promise that I would help other families that were in similar situations. Um, and she told me that if I did it, that she would haunt my ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'd love to see my, Love to see my daughter again, but I really don't want to be haunted. That shit would scare me. No, not by um, a teenage so I, girl. No, you don't want to be haunted. Yeah, for real, right? <laughs> now, uh, so I started still break. And initially, my plan was just to um, offer gas cards and grocery cards mm-hmm. to families that were in tough situations. I had gone uh, you know, through a grieving period, and I went back to work and had a full-time job. I was working and trying to pull the pieces back together, trying to pick up the pieces, just like that song. I was listening to this morning, right. um, trying to pick up the pieces. And, um, and so I started doing that. I started giving gas cards and grocery cards uh, to the clinics and the hospitals. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. Well, something magical, for lack of a better word, happened. And it turns out that I'm really, really good at what I do. Like, who would have sunk it? I never would have sunk it. Kids with cancer love me. They, I mean, I'll lay on the floor with them. I'll play Barbies. I'll play crazy eights. They've never met anybody like me before in their life. Like I'm this crazy cartoon character that they so desperately need, um, you know, to bring a, 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 some sort of something different to this, this situation that they're in because, you know, kids aren't stupid. Kids can, can read everybody and everything. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I'm sure if I were a kid and the same staunch doctors and the same staunch, I'm going to pray for you, people would come in. Like, I'd be bored to tears, you know? And so when I show up, you know, I'm crazy, I'm wild, I'm loud, I'm colorful, I've got tattoos, I tell fascinating jokes, we lay on the floor, <laughs> we have a boat. So I'm really good at it. And then, um, you know, all that stuff I was telling you about my stepdad, you know, that, I, you know, I know a lot of four-syllable words, yeah. you know, and so I became a public speaker and I became a very aggressive, like I said earlier, unapologetic activist. You know, you could find me uh, at, in Congress. I was at the White House yelling and screaming. I actually stormed out of the White House during this meeting one time because I thought their answers they were giving were shitty, useless answers. And I found myself in the, like, hallways of the white house like mad and i was like oh my god i'm gonna get shot and i'm just like <laughs> walking around here screaming and cussing fortunately i didn't get shot when i was escorted out and uh and interestingly enough i've never been invited back to fucking the white house but that's fine because i you know i i don't want to sit through their bullshit canned answers about why our children are worth less money than potato chips um so i started you know being very outspoken. I've done three TEDx talks about childhood cancer. I think I may be one of the fewest, maybe the only person in the country that's ever done three TEDx talks. Certainly the only person that's ever done three about childhood cancer. You can find all of those on YouTube. I would encourage your listeners, if you'd like to understand and get more information about what's really going on, 
because um, chances are you've, you, you're, you're under the misconception, like a lot of Americans, that it's some sort of St. Jude commercial with smiling, bald-headed mm-hmm. kids who go to Disney World and get better. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's anything but that. That's a big fat lie. You know, I've I've, I've had, as I mentioned in, in when we were starting, I had Lauren on as, as a guest, and and she she talks very candidly about childhood cancer and and some of the medic the medicines. I'll use quotations because we both know it's poison, but she talks right. very candidly about it as well, being that it was the same medicine from the seventies and eighties that they pumped into her. And it's the same medicine from the 70s and 80s that it pumped into Marshall, who was also a guest and who also had childhood cancer, who happened right. to be in the hospital with Lauren at the time. Um, it's the same It's the same medicine that they're pumping into Cal. It's the same. It's the same shit. And there isn't, yeah. there isn't this push forward to save not just children, but anybody with cancer because it's yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. And I think that the disconnect somehow falls in, in, in the place because- you know, some people do get better from this poison. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that it kills cancer cells, but it also kills healthy cells. Yes. And it also causes major side effects and secondary cancers. I just buried a little girl, one of the kids that I'm so much, so close to. I just buried her because, well, her parents buried her because she had developed a secondary cancer mm. from the treatment that cured right. the first cancer. You right. know, and I'm just a shout out while we while we brought her up. I love Lauren. Lauren is like, man, she's one of my favorite people in the, in the whole entire world. We're like peas and carrots, me and that girl, man. I, I you know, COVID uh, caused a lot of people to have to, to do a lot of things. But prior to COVID, man, Lauren and I were inseparable. Right. You know, we, we we were in the hospitals and the clinics every day. She ran one of the ultra marathons with me. She ran a couple of ultra marathons to raise money. Um, she's one of my favorite people in the entire world, and. Part of the reason that I so happily agreed to do your your podcast is she told me you were a solid dude. And if if Lauren tells me something like that, I'd take it to heart. Because Lauren, while while I've been through some stuff with my daughter, Lauren's been through some shit because mm-hmm. she recovered from, you know, what we just talked about. She went right. through that, you know. Right. And they told her, Lauren, like, I'm going to give us a shout out to her story because it's wild. They told her mom that she might not live. And then if she lived, she might not walk. And right. then if she walked, she, she'd be handicapped. And nobody bothered to tell Lauren because she's a damn firefighter now. Right. right. <laughs> what they didn't, nobody what knows. they failed to say was she might live but be a firefighter. Yeah, man. So, so while there is a lot of doom and gloom, you know, in in my job and my stories, there's also again brings you back to the, you know, if you can find beauty even when it's not pretty. I mean, look at Lauren. Lauren is the a true testament, somebody who beat the odds, you know, and came out swinging and, uh, and went on to be this amazing person who not only has this amazing life for herself, but she gives back, mm-hmm. you know, and she wants to help others. And she serves as my mentorship chairperson on my board of directors. And she mentors other young ladies and young men too, who are uh, going through what she did. And she, you know, we all are a little bit hindered by the, the COVID restrictions that are still in place in the hospitals. Because children with cancer are right. immunocompromised to begin with. So while the country has bounced back a lot from COVID, uh, that's the one area that we're still, we're not quite as dialed in as, we, as we'd like to be. But we're, we're hopeful and we're trying to push forward. But anyways, just a huge shout out to Lauren. If Lauren, if you listen to this, I love you to pieces. And that's never going to change. Well, I know that when, when I heard that Aaron, that's, that's the, my buddy who at work, who I used to be on the same shift with, who's basically a brother to me. When I heard that he was, he and his family were going through some childhood cancer because his son, 
the first person I reached out to was Lauren, and she did not hesitate. She was in touch with him that day, that weekend, and she's been in touch with him ever since. And so just I, I, I agree with you. I'll, I'll piggyback on what you have to say. She is one of the best people I know. Yeah, she she called me when that when that whole situation went down. She's like, I I got this this kid, you know, who, who I'm directly connected to, and I said, you have the credit card, do what needs to be done, you know, make sure those people have everything they need. And she was over there like the next day, yeah, like she was on it. So yeah, Lauren's got a real heart for what's going on, and and um, yeah, I couldn't. She's like, I can't say enough good things about her. I just can't. Let's let's talk about what I think makes you the craziest person in the world. Oh, is there only one thing? Yeah, there's well, the one thing that jumps out at me. Like I said, no, that man is that man's got some mental issues. Uh, ultra marathons. Right. Why are you yeah. doing them? And how are you doing them? What's your purpose? Um, and what's next for you? Okay, so just back up a little bit. When I was a boxer, you know, part of boxing was running. You mm -hmm. have to run. It's called you know your road work. No boxer likes it. We hate no. it. You go out there and you run, but it helps to build your legs and it helps to build your, you know, your, your cardio and stuff like that. But nobody likes me. Hate it. I have two or three t-shirts that say, I hate running. Running <laughs> is stupid. Running sucks. I hate it. Um, but there was this woman and most of my crazy stories always start with, there's this woman. There's this woman that I was kind of seeing who talked me into running a marathon. It's a long story. But she taught me into running a marathon. And so I was like, oh, yeah, baby, anything for you. And uh, so I started training for this marathon. And um, and then I got this idea because at that time, Still Braid was just in its infancy. And I got this idea that maybe I could run the marathon and, and see if I could raise money, mm -hmm. you know, for, for general cancer because I had raised so much money fighting. And so I, I started training for the race and uh, we started getting donations that people were really on board. Uh, but unfortunately, about... Uh, Three weeks before the marathon was to take place, I um, I broke my leg in five different places. I got like five class four stress fractures because I overtrained. Um, you know, I didn't know how to run. I didn't know how to train for a marathon. And I'm so aggressive that I just went out, ran a million miles every day. That's apparently not how you train. You have to rest. <laughs> Who knew, right? But, so I broke my leg in, in five places and couldn't run the marathon. Um, but during that time off, the doctor, you know, put me in a, in a cast and I was on crutches during that time off. Uh, we really got still brave going. Like I reached out to everybody who had donated and I asked them if they wanted their money back and nobody said they wanted their money back. So we took that money and we used it to buy business cards and websites. And, and a good friend of mine, Julie, helped donate some money so that we were able to get our 501c process going. And during that time, we became an official 501c3. And the doctors told me to stay off my leg for eight weeks to give it some time to train. And then I could get off the crutches and go back to living my life. Well, about four and a half months into it, I started training again. <laughs> down and started training again. And then it um, wasn't long after that that I, I completed the Marine Corps Marathon um, and raised, I don't know, like maybe $10,000 um, for still break. And I finished it in a respectable four-hour time, which is pretty good for an old dude who hates running. Yeah. Um, but then it dawned on me, right? I had this friend who started talking to me about ultra marathons, and I was like, "What the hell would somebody want to run an ultra marathon right. for? Like marathons, brutal enough, right? Didn't the the first guy that ran a marathon like he died you know, back <laughs> in Greece forever, right? Like, why would I want to run? But anyway, the next race after a, a marathon, you know, in the in the ultra community that's respectable is considered a, a fifty mile race. So I was like, "Well, shit!" If I raised ten grand. Um, running the the marathon, what could I ru raise running the the fifty mile race? 
So I ran a 50 mile race and we raised like $25,000. And, uh, and I was like, brain started sharing again. I was like, well, damn, if I ran a 50 mile race, you raised $25,000. What would I, could I possibly make if I ran a hundred mile race? And I at the time didn't even know there were a hundred mile races that, you know, right. like the Marine Corps marathon, 30,000 people sign up for that. Like a 50 mile race. It's like, like a thousand people. And when you get to a hundred mile race, it's like four or 500 people. And then when you get to a 200 mile race, it's like 80 people. But anyway, so I ran the hundred mile race. And during that race, we got this idea. And that was to dedicate each of those hundred miles to a different child. Right. who was either fighting cancer or had lost their battle to cancer. So I reached out via social media and I got inundated with, with a hundred kids, like today, like all the parents, particularly, I think when, when children die, parents' biggest fear is that their children are going to be forgotten. Yeah. And that happens. Like even your, your, your relative will stop saying their names and, and they become this like ghost and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the parents' biggest fear. So the race was all of a sudden it was serving two purposes. The first purpose was to raise money so that we continue the programs and services that Still Brave was really starting to offer. And the second one was to, to bring new life or rebreathe life back into these children who had passed away. Because all of a sudden their parents had something to focus on and the community that supported the children when they were going through treatment had something to to put their time and energy back into. And then I would stop and I would read these children's stories and they read their names at every mile. And we would um, we would do like live feeds and Facebook feeds. And so uh, it became this really cool like reality TV show. And for some reason, the more I suffer, the harder it is for me, the more people donate. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we raised like $80,000 from this 100-mile race. And so I was like, fuck it. It's on. And, uh, and I found out about this 200-mile race through uh, uh, around Lake Tahoe. And so I signed up for it. And, uh, and, I, and I ran and completed a 200-mile race and raised $236,000 during that race. And we can touch a lot of lives and we can help a lot of children and families with $236,000. Yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, and that race was so long and so difficult. And, you know, I'm a slow runner, so I had to stay on my feet. Like a lot of runners, it's a timed race. But if you lay down to rest, that counts against yeah, your Yeah, you had to make up that time and, somewhere then. Yeah, so if you, you, know, you have to be really careful, you'll get disqualified. So I was staying on my feet, man, and I was hallucinating, and I was seeing shit that wasn't there. And we were televising that for everybody to see, and I had a GPS tracker. So people could follow my progress. And apparently it became this really compelling thing. People would tell me later on that they'd get up in the middle of the night, check my progress on their phones, and the donations were coming in. And the families were coming to meet me. Like families were driving four and five hours to meet me at different aid stations just to cheer me on. And man, this whole community thing just got big and there was energy and there was love and there was empathy and there was passion. And it was this amazing thing. And so that became our thing, you know, and, um, and I've gone on to run many of those races, um, unfortunately, uh, because of that, because I'm old, I drove one of my hips into the ground yeah. and I had to have a hip replacement surgery, uh, back in June of 2022. Uh, but that's not going to stop because I'm signed up to run the Moab 240 mile ultra marathon in two months through the Moab desert, um, and if I finish it, I'll be the first person in history with a hip replacement to finish that race. And if I don't finish it, I'll still be a bad motherfucker for starting. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, 
So we'll see what happens. But excuse my language. When I'm, when I'm in the clinics and hospitals with the kid, I, I don't cuss so much. So when I, I'm not around the kids, I'm kind of a potty. Yeah, a little loose. I don't, I don't care. Everybody cusses on this show. Well, not everybody. Yeah, so, I've gotten through a few episodes with, without people cussing. I've blown away that I ma- managed to not cuss. Yeah, when I get excited, it's they're, they're colorful adjectives. Yeah, I don't even think they're bad words. <laughs> colorful but anyways, I've got 240 kids. Um, I've got a wonderful team that's coming with me. Um, one of my pacers, they allow you to have pacers with you uh, to make sure when you're hallucinating that you don't fall off a cliff right. and stay on course. So one of my pacers is this wonderful young lady who lost both her brother and her mm. sister to cancer. And my other pacer is a guy named Mike, whose daughter, Riley, is a childhood cancer survivor, which okay. is awesome. She also likes punk rock, rock and roll. She's a cool kid. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I've known her since he was going through treatment. And then my um, my crew chief, the guy that's going to drive around and navigate us and get us from aid station to aid station, he's the father of the little girl, Katie, I just told you about, passed away okay. um, from the secondary cancer. So I put together a team of very driven, passionate, provocative people to get us across this finish line. And we really hope that your listeners will go to stillbrave.org, click on the Moab 240 link and donate. Yeah. Think about how much money you spend on potato chips, you know, kick down some potato chip money so that we can touch lives of children with cancer and their families. I'll run all the fucking miles. You guys can stay home and touch all the lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's what, that's what I'm doing. And that makes me definitely makes me crazy. That's one of a number of things, according to my ex-wife and my mother, but, uh, <laughs> but crazy nonetheless. And I'm fine with that, man. You know, I'm fine with that. Maybe it's my crazy that makes me so, so valuable to the childhood care church community, you know, and I'm fine with that. So what, what needs or what can be done to, to other than raising money? Cause raising money is the big chunk of it. I understand that, but what kind of pressure can be applied? What kind of uh, outcry can be, can be made to, to start making so, some change? Yeah. So that's the problem. I belong to a lot of organizations and, and there are a lot of people who push and shove and try you know, ad nauseum to get the government. Because I believe, let me give you an example. In the 80s, when the AIDS epidemic hit, mm-hmm. um, at first it was just the gay community that was being exposed to it, right? So nobody really cared. There wasn't very much money being thrown at it. People have a lot of um, bigoted ideas about things. I'm not going to turn this into political conversation. Right. But the, the point I was trying to make is during that, that time, at first, when it was mostly the homosexual community that was being exposed to it, there wasn't any money being thrown at it. But later on, a lot of people started getting it. Magic Johnson yeah. got it. Like I was going to say, people, when Magic all, came down, yeah. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, the governments around the world were throwing billions of dollars at it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was sitting too close to home for people. And so that amount of money, that amount of energy that was put in, all of the top scientists in the world you know, put all their time and energy in it. And while HIV and AIDS is it's not a walk in the park today, it's not a death sentence that it once was, right? In a lot of cases, it's a chronic illness that be, can be controlled with medicine, right? And the same thing happened, and again, I want to be really careful. I'm not trying to turn this into a political conversation, mm-hmm. but when COVID hit, everybody freaked out because people were dying. So mm-hmm. all the governments in the world threw all the money and their top scientists and their top doctors on it, and we came up with a vaccine. And again, not to have a political conversation, that's not what I'm doing. But that's what I'm saying needs to happen with childhood cancer. All the government and all the countries and all the top scientists and all the doctors have to get on board and realize this is a problem. But the problem there, the disconnect is, and it's always going to be, is that 
there's no Magic Johnson with childhood cancer. Right. You know what I mean? There's not millions and millions of people. We don't all have to wear masks because of childhood cancer. But those are our children. Those are our future. They're more priceless to me than one basketball player. So that's that lies the difference. So the constant disconnect is going to always be there. Unless you are personally touched by it, you don't want to think about it. The last thing you want to think about is your children dying, right? right. Who wants to fuck about that, right? So you definitely, there's some survival flight or fight mechanism in your brain doesn't even let you think about it. You know, it's weird. It's the weirdest thing. I, I can't even tell you how weird it is. I mean, I've been doing this for over a decade and it's so weird. But there's a one particular cancer called DIPG, diffusion intrinsic pontine glioma. It's a terminal brain cancer. When a child gets it, that child will die. There is no treatment for that. In 1969, Neil Armstrong's daughter got that cancer. They gave her medicine to treat it, but she died. Today, if a little girl gets that same cancer, they're going to give her the same damn medicine that doesn't work, and she's going to die. Right. And where's the disconnect, and what do we do, and how do we change that? I don't know. The, the short answer is I don't know. But what I do know is I'm not going to quit fucking trying. You know, I'm just going to keep what I tell you earlier, brother. I'm just going to keep showing up. Right. And I'm going to show up aggressive and I'm going to show up unapologetic and I'm going to be in their faces and I'm going to keep screaming and I'm going to keep running my body into the ground. Whether I got to get another hip replacement, whether I got to do whatever I got to do, whether I got to get on a million podcasts, you know, it's just going to be a question of, 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 of I don't even know, but I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep showing up as long as they let. And I can't give you an answer of what's going to fix it. I don't know. You know, maybe if Magic Johnson's daughter got, I don't know. Right. You know, I don't know, man. But, you know, we, we, we have a disproportionate amount of money going to, I mean, taxpayer dollars going to some really stupid fucking shit in this country right now. Yeah. And we're watching our children die. And, and that's a political conversation that I'm not afraid to have because it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. If that's okay with you, then your political party sucks. Right. You know, but who cares? If you're, if you're okay, I, you know, I go to the national... Cancer Institute sometimes to protest. I go down there with a bullhorn and I go down there with a podium and I stick my podium up and I scream and I yell and they never come out and they never talk to me. And they never, I asked them to be, I had a podcast I was running for a while. I asked them to come on my podcast. They wouldn't, you know, because they're afraid. They're afraid to talk about it because unfortunately in this country, all right, let me give you one last thing because then I'll settle down. <laughs> Remember I told you that that my daughter's um, defibrillator was recalled like right. brakes on a Chevy, right? Do you know what it takes for brakes on a Chevy to be recalled? It takes a whole bunch of people dying, right? The first couple of people that die, they don't recall them because right. not that big a deal, right? Right? It has to be a huge thing, right? So it's the same thing, man. Like we have to get to a point where, where enough people are dying and enough children are dying, but at the end of the day, the National Cancer Institute and the government of the United States figures there's an acceptable amount of dead children that isn't worth the recall, that isn't worth the, the advancement. You know, there's a the, there's a cry that the, the childhood, cancer, childhood, cancer, childhood cancer community says all the time is that childhood cancer isn't rare, okay? It's not. Right. Like, a lot of children get it. You know, we lose the equivalent of five entire elementary schools of children to cancer every year. Right. It's not rare. But it's not as, not as many kids die from it as kids die from other things or adults die from things. So there is in this country an acceptable amount of deaths that are okay before people will act. When COVID first hit, 
there was an acceptable amount of deaths that took place before they started throwing money at it. When the AIDS epidemic hit, there was a certain amount of deaths that were acceptable until they started throwing money at it. When the brakes on a Chevy fail, there's a certain amount of fucking, you know, you know, deaths before it becomes a priority. That's the disconnect. That's what's wrong with this country. That's always going to be the case. And I don't know how to solve that, you know, but I mean, but I, like I say, I'm going to keep showing up and I will continue to try to get those brakes recalled. Believe it. So I got to ask you, how were the wings in the challenge? <laughs> That's a good segue to get away from. So look, man, those wings were wicked hot. I got, I got to wing number eight and that was <laughs> the hottest thing I ever put in my body. It got me so, it was so hot. And it's weird because your body does the same kind of fight or flight thing, right? Like all these endorphins kick in and your body's like, dude, you're really screwing up right now. Stop this. Stop this. <laughs> and uh, so by the time I got to wing number eight, it was so hot. Uh, I don't even remember wing nine and 10, but we raised like $42,000 that wow. people... People just love to see me suffer, like I told people. But funny story, uh, if you follow my social media, you may have seen this. So during that hot sauce psychosis, after wing number eight, uh, I auctioned off my caboose, my butt, to the highest bidder. <laughs> yeah. And so the Unfortunately, I saw it. <laughs> so like, hey, for a whole dude, I, my convince ain't that There you go. <laughs> so we got like $1,200. And a couple of days ago, I guess it was last week, I tattooed... Uh, a couple of chicken wings and three people's names on right. my butt. Um, but I auctioned off a part of my body. I've done it four or five times, the highest bidder. And uh, it's a way to raise money. We raised like $30,000. I mean, you can't tattoo anything inappropriate, but I've right. got some cute tattoos. I'll tell you one fast story that we can end here because it's a cute story to, to get out of that uh, aggressive uh, 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 politics. By the way, I don't so, mind the aggressive I, politics. I just had to ask about the wings. I wasn't trying well, to get listen, away I, from I, it. I, I get it. I get it. Like I'll get, I'll get worked up. It's, it's probably not even good for my heart to get that worked up about. You know I mean? But anyways, so the very first time, but I don't probably tattoo talk for nothing. So I got this idea, and I get tattoos sometimes. Like if a kid's gonna pass away, like that girl Katie that I just told you who passed away, whose dad's coming with me. I flew out to Seattle to spend some time with her before she passed away, and she drew this. I don't know if you can see it, but she drew this kitty cat tattoo. Okay, and. um, we went to the to the kitty cat cafe and she drew this picture and then we went and got it tattooed. And I told her, you know, no matter what happens from now on, you're always going to be a part of me. Right. And I've done that for probably five or six different kids. I have tattoos all over my body that, that kids drew for me. But I got this idea that I was going to auction off my body and then I was going to make a ton of money. Like McDonald's or Apple or somebody was going to give me like $300,000 tattoo their logo on. Like I had delusions of grandeur, I guess, right? Well, it turns out that that didn't happen. Um, but the very first tattoo auction that I did, this little girl named Tara, uh, who was a brain cancer survivor, she put on lemonade stands and car washes and her and her friend canvassed all their parents and all their parents' friends for money. And she raised over $3,000. And she won the right to tattoo anything she wanted on my body. This kid, this crazy-ass kid, Made me get a cat, let me think, let me see, I didn't say it, a kitty cat, butterfly, unicorn, standing on a softball, farting rainbow cat. <laughs> That's my princess Tara made me get, so I have that tattoo on my So she but knows, kid, so she knows you well. She does, man. She's a cool kid, man. She just, um, when she was going through treatment, she was, I don't know, six or seven or eight years old, maybe. And, um, but she loved me and I would spend time with her at the clinic. There's a great story about this princess event that we put on for her. But anyway, I promised her 
way back then, I said, if you ever turn 18, or I didn't say it like that, but I was like, when you turn 18, if you want to get a tattoo, I got you. Well, 10 years later, a couple of months ago, she turned 18 against the whole odds. Right. And I took her to the tattoo shop and, and made good on my promise and got her her first tattoo. Awesome. What a, one of the best days of my life. Yeah, of course I love, it is. Love, love, love stories that end like that. And then, you know, there's a lot of sadness in, in what I do. And I lose a lot of kids and it's heartbreaking. There's a lot of really great stories. There's a lot of survivors. Unfortunately, oftentimes those survivors are plagued with, you know, chronic side effects mm-hmm. and secondary cancers. And their life isn't always easy, but they still have a life and they're still alive. And, uh, and I don't know that I play any big part of that, um, but I know that I want to play a big part of that. And I know that I'm super duper grateful that I get to be a part of that. Well, here's a question for you then going on the talking about survivors. Uh, when I talk to Marshall and, and, and Lauren to a, to a fair extent as well, Marshall talks about this, uh, well, definitely a, a PTSD from the cancer, but this, this, this dread every year. You know, when he's just, he's, he for a long time and, and maybe to a degree still today is just waiting for the, for the return of cancer. And, and yeah. so is your foundation, how do you approach that with kids? So that's a reality. And, um, you know, there are cases of, of children and adults, of course, going five, 10, 15 years. And, and then all of a sudden the cancer comes back. So it's something that they're going to live in fear of. Like you can't. How could you not? Right. You know, it's it's, it's a reality. And that's a, scat, a sad, scary place. So what I do notice, though, is there's a lot of kids who um, who are able to compartmentalize that in such a way that they they really start living for the moment. You know, they become very, very mindful of how important it is to stay in the here and now. And, and it, that's the whole trick. Any major religion since the dawn of religions, the one common denominator they have besides I love everybody is, you know, stay in the moment, be present, be mindful. You know, all we have is this moment. So a lot of children and adults even are able to do that. But as far as survivorship goes, there's two things that, that, that play a, a child, um, you know, once they, they become, let's say five years and they're considered cured. And the first one is of course that the cancer might come back. And the second one is they get this guilt feeling because all of their friends have died right. and they're still alive and they don't understand why. Yeah. So still brave. When you become a still brave kid, that's a lifelong thing. Like we don't, we don't ever stop contacting them. I have, uh, I take kids out to dinner who were survivors on a regular basis. I've got friends that are now, uh, one girl, Serena, who I love to death. I started hanging out with her when she was a teenager. Uh, she just graduated with some crazy master's degree in art therapy so she can help kids with cancer. And she calls me on my birthday and she tells me that she loves me and we go out to dinner. And if she were ever to need anything for any reason, I would do it. I wouldn't even ask any questions. So survivorship and moving forward is something that Still Brave uh, is very, very um, aware of and very concerned about. And Lauren, she works for us and she helps uh, to, 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 to fill some of that need because if we do get somebody that calls or we make a connection, she can sort of talk to them and she will. She'll call them. She'll go out to dinner with them. She'll model for them, you know, how to live a, a, a meaningful life in, 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 I wouldn't say how to shake that fear because you never can really shake it, yeah. but how to live your life in spite of that fear, right? And she's a perfect example of somebody who's done that. Serena is another example. So I make those connections uh, when I can with, uh, with children, you know, to make sure that they have uh, a network and they have a foundation and they have other people. But I also field phone calls at three o'clock in the morning, you know, from kids who are scared and they're crying and they don't know what to do. And I just listen, yeah. you know, I just listen. I just listen and I'll listen for hours and hours and hours. That's what it takes. When you become a still brave kid, 
that's that's a lifelong uh, relationship. And and we even if still brave were to dissipate and never not be a foundation anymore, as long as I'm alive, like like I would never forsake or forget those those children. And so, I mean, I, I I know that's maybe I don't know exactly what answer you wanted, but there's important to us in the survivorship phase of their life as they are in the treatment phase, every bit. So I've got two more things from Still Brave specifically I want to talk about. Uh, first is you mentioned it kind of at the beginning with Billy Strings, the uh, the Two Feather Society, correct? Right. So yes. explain that. So it's, explain the purpose behind it because that's a little bit, not, it's, I guess it's a little separate from, from Still Brave, but it's still related. It's separate. Yeah, it's separate and related. It's just this cool thing that I came up with uh, with a friend of mine. And basically what it boils down to is, I told you about these silver braces right. that, that my daughter and I shared. So I get close to kids, pretty close to kids. Like I always walk into the hospital and I'm like, not this time. It's all business. Don't yeah. let them look at you. Just tell them this is all business. And then I go in and they bat their eyes at me and I'm like, oh, let me buy you a pony. You know I mean? <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so I get particularly close to a kid and I buy them one of these silver bracelets to show them how much I love them. It's the greatest gift I can give you. If I ever give you a silver bracelet, that means I love you more than I love anybody ever. Because the only person that I, the first person that I mm -hmm. gave that bracelet to was my daughter. Yeah. So there are a handful of people that I've given that bracelet to. And if I had a million dollars to give you, to me, giving you a million dollars wouldn't be as valuable as if I gave you one of these bracelets. So anyway, I started giving the bracelets to kids that I got close to. But the problem is that the bracelets are very expensive. They cost like two, $300 a piece, right? So this friend of mine told me about these feather feather rings. I don't know if you can see them, but mm -hmm. these little sterling silver feather ring. So it was a kind of a weird process that happened, but we came up with this idea. And what we do is we give the kids um, a feather ring and they become a member of the Two Feather Society. And the requirement to become a member of the Two Feather Society is that you have to promise that you will do five, a minimum of five random acts of kindness to help somebody else, right? It doesn't matter what it is. You can buy somebody a cup of coffee, you can help them off with the dishes, whatever the case may be. But then there was a secret component to it. And up until this point, it's been very secret, but I don't mind sharing it with you now because we're hoping that this thing is going to explode. But the beauty and the magic and the uh, wonder of this society is that when the kids are in the hospital, you know, Jimmy might go home for a while, he's feeling better. Uh, then he could get sick again and have to be rushed back to the hospital. Katie might still be in the hospital. So when Jimmy and Katie see each other, they're glad to see each other. They're best friends. They see each other in the hospital. They play and they color together, whatever. Well, here's the thing. The ring is so important. It binds these kids together. So what the kids are do is they'll take their ring off and they'll exchange it for the other kid's ring. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is you take on the hardships, you take on the burdens, you take on the fear of the other kids. And then you give them your good energy and your good juju, right? And so I've got rings that have been circulated like 40, 50 kids. We have over 350 members of our club. And so as the club was building, it was just kids with cancer. And then I'd invite a nurse to join or I'd invite a sibling to join. And they just got weird. I would meet like some person on the street. Like I met this woman who was dressed up in an orca outfit, like a killer whale, like a furry <laughs> outfit. And I and everybody was walking past her like she was a crazy person. But because I have no boundaries, I walked up to her and I was like, what the hell are you doing out here in a killer whale out? And she went on to tell me, um, I don't know if you remember this story about this killer whale whose baby had died. 
Yes. And mom was so grief-stricken that she yes. twisted around the ocean. Yeah. So this woman was a whale conservationist who was out there dressed in a workout bit to talk about love. That's hmm. the only reason she was out there, exposing herself to the ridicule of the passerby only because she wanted to talk to them about love. So I was like, girl, I want you to join my club. <laughs> so I keep an extra ring on my finger at all times. And so I gave her a, a ring and she's in my club. And then I started getting famous people to join. But Zach Wild, who's Ozzy Osbourne's guitar player, mm-hmm. I met him. He's in. Billy Strings is in, one of my favorite people. Um, Billy Strings is sound man. Daniel Donato, a famous guitar player. Um, I've got best-selling New York Times authors in the club. Um, I've got all these clubs. So when I let a kid in the club, um, I'm able to say to him, look, this guy's in and that guy's in. This guy's in. It's a super cool club. And we also take and we write. I have a friend, Kristen, who keeps a leather-bound journal. And when anybody gets inducted into the Two Feather Society, she writes their name in calligraphy in this book. So that when the archaeologists find it a thousand years from now, <laughs> they'll know who we were. So that's the Two Feather Society. There's two ways to get in. The first and most esteemable way, I guess you want to say it like that, is for me to personally induct right. you. Like for me to take a ring off my finger and let you in, you get a special hieroglyphic next to your name if that's how you get. But also because we want more people to live an empathetic, compassion-filled life of taking care of one another, we do offer a membership, a lifetime membership that includes the ring, the T-shirt, and um, and you get your name in the book. If you go to TrueFeathersSociety.org, it's a little secret offshoot website. It's not part of Still Brave's website directly, but it's a way that if you wanted to or your listeners wanted to, they could join this club. And it's a $100 donation that we use to support our programs and services. But you get a sterling silver ring and a T-shirt and some stickers and shit. I mean, it's a bargain, twice that price. Right. You know what I'm Plus, the kids love it. And the stronger we get and the bigger the club gets, the more excited the kids get to be a part of it. And if any famous person should happen to hear this podcast, you know, we'd love to have you in because you would help to motivate these kids and make these kids feel more important and more valued and more seen and more heard. And that's what I want. Perfect. Perfect. That's I. You obviously explained it better than I could ever do, and and that's why I asked. I, I love it. Thank you. Uh, sure. the, the the last thing about about uh, Still Brave is your Christmas auction coming up, or your Christmas raffle. I, how do you, how do you term it? I'm sorry, I'm destroying it for you. Okay, no worries. So pre COVID, every year we used to put on the Rock and Renegade Holiday Extravaganza. Okay, and what that is, it's a concert that we put on. So there are a lot of childhood cancer foundations, and I don't begrudge anybody any way that they raise money. It's completely cool. It's completely fine. They, you know, everybody has a certain demographic that they want to attract. Some cancer foundations will have bingo nights or golf tournaments or or tea parties or things like that. But we're renting. We'll do it like that, right? So we have punk rock concerts, and once a year we put on the Rock and Renegade, where we bring out these bands, and it's rock and roll, and it's punk rock, and it's shots of tequila. And it's tight skirts and leather jackets. And we have a silent auction. And it's a way for parents, parents like myself, who really don't want to play golf, to come out and have fun and do something that to cut loose and forget about life for a while, you know? And so we, we had not put one on because COVID hemmed this up for a couple of years. So this year on December 2nd, Jam and Java in Vienna, Virginia, we're bringing back Rock and Renegade Extravaganza. Um, it'll be concerts, there'll be free food, there'll be drink specials, there'll be rock and roll. We're also going to have silent auctions. So if you want to donate an item to our silent auction, whether it's a gift basket or a vacation property or gift cards or anything that you want to va- uh, value that you want to donate, 
please send me an email. My email address is Tom, T-O-M dot Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L at Stillbrae, S-T-I-L-L-B-R-A-D-E dot work. And that's my personal email. I personally will respond to every email that you send me, whether it's related to the silent auction or whether it's related to a child that you have a treatment for cancer, or it's whether it's related to something that you're dealing with as a person. I will respond to each and every email. It would take me all night. I read my emails every day and I respond to each and every one. But we would love, love, love to have you show up at the event to buy a ticket. Tickets will be going on sale soon. Stay tuned to my social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Mostly, I do most of my business on Facebook just because I'm old. And that's the only one that I can really understand completely. I don't have a TikTok yet, but I've got a Facebook that keeps things pretty up up to date. So you can friend me or follow me on on Facebook and you can watch. I post, if you you, you follow me on social media, I post ad nauseous. I'm always posting something. And uh, this is going to be a super fun event. Like, you got to come out, man. This is rock and roll for kids with cancer. This ain't no bullshit. This yeah. is your daddy's office party. You well, know it's, that? it's funny because <laughs> as you were talking, I, I, I multitask because I had that ADD that goes on and goes through my body. I, I multitasked and, and made sure I just got the day off after because I was supposed to work the day after. The, so I'm supposed to work on a third, but I just put in for, for vacation. So I'll be there on the right second. On. Yeah, Great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Make sure you get in touch with me because I make sure you get tickets. The event will sell out. Okay. It's a smaller venue and it will sell out. So get in touch with me. Oh yeah, Jam and Java is a very cool venue. Actually, it's a it's, oh, it's a, a great it's very venue. small venue, and and you want to talk talk about intimate, and it's intimate. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's gonna be fun. I have a funny story, and I'm some- I'm gonna put my buddy on blast for a second here. We we okay. went, you know, uh, John R. Miller. Yes. All right, we went and saw John Miller there, and and uh, yes. I forgot who the opener was, but my buddy came out, and I'm not gonna put his name out there, but some people are gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. He came out and and. It, at intermission, I went and used the bathroom, and so he followed, and he went and used the bathroom at the same, or right after me, came out, and he sat down next to me. He goes, well, and he looks around, he goes, yeah, I definitely took a poop in the women's bathroom. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I, I guess it was the wrong room, wrong bathroom. I said, how'd you, get, how'd you get in there, use the bathroom, come out without getting caught? He's like, I don't know, but I did. I, I definitely went in the wrong bathroom, so he knows who I'm talking about. He'll listen, and he'll get a laugh about it. That's so funny because I went there just a couple of days ago to sign the contract and do the final walkthrough and everything. And I had to use the bathroom. And I've been there many times, but I had to use the bathroom. And they're not clearly marked on the door as okay. clearly as they should be. They're not. So in fairness to your buddy, I can see how he made that mistake because I bumped my head in to look for a urinal just to be sure I was walking into the right <laughs> Yeah, and it was I funny. Yeah, that just happened. <laughs> he just he just came out. I was like, "Yeah, I definitely took a shit in the women's bathroom." And I I just like, "Well, that that's you, buddy. I don't know. I don't know what to well, say about that." One more question for you. This happen. this is for a good friend of mine who I I worked with and I've known for about nine years now. And since you're a boxer, I have to get this out because I want to I want to I want to float something by you. He's six four, about two fifty, and he swears he could go he could avoid Mike Tyson for six rounds. And I told him he's crazy. There's no way you can avoid Mike Tyson for six rounds. Why does he think that? Because he's big. Yeah, he, he thinks he can. He thinks he can do fought? the the put the hand on the forehead thing and and hold him at bay at least and and run from us. And no, Mike you're, Tyson will come. Mike Tyson will come under and give him an uppercut that'll knock him back to second grade. Hey, we're all trying to bring him down to earth and, and, and inform him that's impossible. But he swears he swears he can do it. So I just wanted to bring. He's, so now you're a, prof- a former professional boxer. Right here, it's telling me that yeah. you can't do it. Even Mike Tyson at his age today would break that poor man to a million pieces. <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you a quick thing that we used to say. 
You play baseball. You play soccer. You play tennis. You don't play box. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. makes it's a science. It makes sense. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's get. Believe to- me, I was a pro. I was a pro boxer, but I wasn't a very good one. I couldn't <laughs> avoid Mike Tyson to right. save my life. If your buddy, I don't care how big, he's just big. If he's that big, he's probably slow as shit. And Mike Tyson would break him in a million pieces, and, and even at his age today. Yeah, I just, uh, I, yeah, I just had to bring it up. It, it came to me when you were talking about boxing, so I was like, yeah, let's let's talk about it at the end. So yeah, let's get to my deflate that. <laughs> we'll get to my last two questions, and 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 the the first one is about a, an everyday carry. Um, What's something that you leave if you left home without you feel naked? My feather bracelet. Yeah, I figured there was gonna it was gonna be that or tattoos. So I figured I, I had to bring no, my tattoos go everywhere with me. Right, but yeah. my feather bracelet, like I, it's rare that I don't have it on. Occasionally, I I, I won't wear it, but it, it's very rare that I don't have it on. If I'm going out, I'm doing a podcast, or I want to talk about something, I have it on. This is the one thing that 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 gives me that energy, that connectedness to my daughter. Um, and I promised her that I would wear it until she was better and, right. and she's not better. So I have to keep that promise. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I then, would sell my house, but I wouldn't sell my bracelet. I got you. I got you. Even if you were giving me the same amount of money for both. Right. Wouldn't do it. Well, there's, you can't replace sentiment. Right. All right. What about a book? I know you said you got up before we started recording. You said, I got the perfect book. I'll hold it up so everybody can see. Tell me about your book. You yeah. So. So this is a book from my childhood. I have a friend right now, this this old buddy of mine, he's this old dude, and he's in the hospital and he's not doing very good. And so he's he can't talk and everything. So I've mostly been going up to visit him and I wanted to sit and read with him. And I couldn't find the right book. So when I was a kid, the very first big boy book that I ever read, the very first chapter book that I ever read was Jonathan Livingston Seagull okay. by Rick Bond. And a lot of people don't understand how Tattoo Tom's brain works or what motivates me. So there's two easy ways to find out what motivates me and 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 what I've modeled myself after or what influences my life. The first would be to read Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and the second would be to watch the movie Billy Jack. You'll see a guy behind me in a cowboy hat with a rifle. In the 1970s, there was a movie that came out called Billy Jack. So if you watch Billy Jack and you read Jonathan Livingston Seagull, a lot about Tattoo Tom will start making a whole lot more sense for you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Very welcome. Thank you for spending 90 minutes with me this morning and 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 kind of opening it up and telling us what, what you're about and, and what Still Brave is about. Right on. I appreciate you having me. And then just another quick shout out. You can find us on social media. You can find me personally, Tom Mitchell. You can also find Still Brave Childhood Cancer Foundation on all the social media platforms. Our website, stillbrave.org, and twofeathersociety.org, if you would be so inclined as to want to join our sacred brethren cistern. And that gift makes a wonderful holiday gift as well. Kids love it. People love it. It's a great gift. That's perfect. I appreciate it, sir. It's a pleasure kind of meeting yeah. you, even though it's virtual. Someday we'll catch up in person, and, and I'll thank oh, for you. for sure. Hopefully I'll see you at Rock and Renegade. You of course. Come, brother. Th- there so you go. Fun. Go enjoy the yeah. rest of your day, my friend. Thank you very kindly. You have a great day. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care, sir. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.